0: Welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is Episode 13. If you've listened to the Team Guru Podcast before, you'll know that it's my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. Sometimes I speak to someone who's an expert in a particular element of leadership, like in the previous episode when I spoke to Stacey Copus about resilience. And sometimes, I talk to someone who is just straight out an impressive leader, someone who's learned lessons and is willing to share them with us. This is one of those episodes. I first met Ted Quartler, or Edward, as his LinkedIn profile tells me, when I was living in Arlington, Virginia, back in the early 2000s. Regular listeners of the show will know that this isn't the first time I've plucked someone from my time in the US and dragged them on the show. Ted lived in the apartment under mine, and the thing I most liked about him at first was the fact that he had a Sony PlayStation, and he had Madden's NFL game, and he was willing to teach me to understand and play that crazy American game. But very quickly, I realized there was something special about him. Ted is a guy oozing with emotional intelligence. I didn't know the language back then. I'd not studied the work of Daniel Goleman or any of the more recent versions of EI. But, as is the way of people gifted with extremely high emotional intelligence, I didn't need to know the language to know there was something very impressive about the way he conducted himself and related to the world around him. We became very good friends. He even came to stay with me at my place in Brisbane not long after I returned to Australia. But then, as life does, things moved on. We both got busy with work and eventually family. We kept up with each other's lives mainly on Facebook. Through our infrequent Facebook contact, the posts of his wife and his mother, it was clear that little Ted was growing into a big boy and having remarkable professional success. And I say remarkable, not surprising. It comes as no surprise to me that Ted's career has been on a sharp trajectory. We know from study after study that high EI correlates to a more successful career in general and greater leadership capability. Ted's career has taken him across the spectrum of the modern corporate scene. He's worked at an iconic dot-com success story, a 100-year-old financial institution, and is currently thrashing it out in the breakneck world of... Of a venture capitalist startup through his experiences he's risen in seniority and responsibility he's managed teams that number in the hundreds he's been at the center of products that are now found in almost every home but what's most interesting and impressive about ted's journey so far are the lessons he's learned discarded changed adjusted and learned afresh his experience across the spectrum of corporate america combined with his acute awareness of himself and others, makes Ted a valuable source of leadership lessons, and he does a fantastic job of bringing them to life in this episode of the Team Guru Podcast. I hope you enjoy listening in as I catch up with Ted Quartler. Ted Quartler, thank you so much for joining us on the Team Guru Podcast.
1: Great. Happy to be here.
0: Ted It's been tough going trying to get a time together to record this (laughs) chat. You have been a busy man. Tell us what you've been up to.
1: Uh, Well, I work at a big startup in in Boston and was at, let's see, 27 people a year ago. Now we're at 120. So we're growing like mad. Uh, And that takes up a lot of my time. And I also have twin daughters. They also take up a lot of my time. And I'm trying to write a book. So there's a lot going on.
0: Mate, you've just summed up a whole bunch of the things I want to ask you about. But first of all, you said Boston. Where is Boston?
1: Boston's in the U.S. on the East Coast. It's a little bit north of New York City, which I hope most people have heard of. But
0: <laughs> I was going to say, the U.S., is that, uh, is that near Canada?
1: Yes, Canada is America's hat. So it's the, they live above a great party. That's what happens for Canada.
0: Yeah, I, I knew that would be a nice baiting question for you, Ted. Yeah. Now, Ted, <laughs> um, I want to go through a few of your career steps later and, and I want to explain to you why I was so keen to get you on the show. But first of all, and now this is a serious question, I know it's going to sound really basic, but you mentioned that you work for a startup and the word startup is something that we hear all the time what are we supposed to think when we hear the word startup? What is a startup?
1: Yeah, so a startup is, it can be within a large corporation in my opinion, but a startup really is something that is, you have very a small cohort of very bright people who are willing to put in a lot of hours and to do something truly innovative. A startup really, you're surrounded by people who are passionate about whatever the item that they're trying to innovate is. So you can get it within a large company. This particular startup actually was very small, and we do analytics software, in a sense, kind of like bleeding edge kind of technological work and building enterprise software. It's very often an innovation, so it it can be, uh, it's high risk. So all of these bright people can get together and work 70-hour work weeks, and nothing commercial or viable can come out of it, or something amazing can come out of it. So for me, a, a startup is any source of innovation where you have a small cohort of people working hard at it. So well, yeah, at, at my startup is now reaching its kind of latter stages. It's already over 100 people.
0: So when does it stop being a startup?
1: Probably right around now, the culture is starting to change. We went from an office with a ping pong table and brick walls and real dingy side of town to now a, a legitimate office space that was once housing PayPal. So now we're very corporate within an office building. And so I think the culture has already started to change. I think that's probably part of the maturing process but as you grow and as you scale.
0: What sort of differences have you noticed as that culture's changed from the startup to a real life, big boy kind of organization?
1: There's more structure, right? So we actually didn't really have an HR. There's a lot more kind of loose, fluid, non-siloed behavior. So for instance, I've helped out on marketing. I've helped out in sales. I've helped out on the data science group. I do whatever needs to be done because when you're a small group, you have to figure that out. As you get larger, there's more specialization. So startups attract people who are fungible that can go in a lot of different directions and like kind of a frenetic pace.
0: So what attracted you to that particular startup? Because I'm just looking through your resume here and you've come (laughs) from some pretty big companies and all of a sudden you find yourself in this startup space. What was it that got you there?
1: Yeah, I think for me, I was actually, I'm pretty risk averse. I've worked mainly for fortune 1000 companies. But two things. I was a beta user of of the free version of this product and I saw the value in it. So it's easy to kind of subscribe and get passionate about it when you yourself are a user. And the other thing is I talked to my wife and she had a quote that sticks with me and she said, look, corporate enterprise jobs will always be there. This is an opportunity to try something that you'll never have a chance to maybe go back to, right? So there's always going to be another corporate job with a tie that, you know, is slow moving and all that. But uh, the chance to really build something with a world-class team is, you know, it only happens once in a while.
0: And when you described or gave us the definition of a startup, you started pretty early in your description by saying it was a place where people are willing to come and work really hard. Was that something that put you off or is that something that really attracted you to it? 70 hour weeks.
1: I think now looking back, it's something that I don't really want to do all that much now that I'm already a year into it. It is something that if you do know going in, though. Just like when I worked at Amazon, it was the same thing where you, you knew you were working Christmas Eve. You knew you were working in the States we celebrate Thanksgiving. And so you, you you know that's a big shopping holiday. So you know you're going to work those days. And if you know it ahead of time, it's not a shock when you get there. But now, a year later, I don't know that I want to always do that.
0: You were describing some of the changes that have taken place as the company grows up or Are all those changes for the better? Or do you see some of them as someone who started early in the organization as being for the worse?
1: I think it depends probably on the startup. My personal feelings about this startup are that it's actually for the better. We need to add more structure. Right now, our organizational structure is very hub and spoke versus top down. And I think that that has now led to some inefficiencies and scaling problems. Because as you start to scale, you do need some defined processes and structure Whereas before we were able to just kind of be fungible and everyone can help each other out. But in doing so, sometimes you have too many cooks in the kitchen. So So, for me, I think this has been a good cultural change.
0: So for you, how long can you imagine yourself in this kind of environment? Or does it depend on how much it changes?
1: To be honest with you, it just depends at the speed of change. And the whole thing with venture capitalist funded startups is you have about a four year window because the limited partners in the VC, they want to have a return on their investment within four years. So realistically, the way this goes is this whole next year, they're going to scale out on the sales side and try and blow out the revenue and then look for an exit, whether it's an IPO or whether it's a, uh, an acquisition. So we have probably about one to two years, no matter what, before you have to start fresh or start anew, or you end up working at an IBM or something like
0: that and- when you get acquired. And what do you imagine will happen to you at that point?
1: I'm not sure I'll be there long enough. to. uh, I think I'm the type of person who is drawn to larger organizations. Larger organizations do move slower. There are still pockets of innovation. There are still pockets of impact. It's not just all moving slowly in the doldrums in big companies. I personally am pretty risk averse. So I like the opportunity to work in a large organization. I feel like that offers you some kind of some backstop. To your career. So, if if sales don't come through in the next 12 months in the startup, you know that the whole thing's moving sideways. That can be a pretty rough next 24 months, so to speak.
0: So, in your role description, you're the manager of customer success. That's got to be a new title.
1: Yeah, it's the first time I had ever heard of it, but it's interesting. It's starting to spring up now. It sounds like a bunch of BS to me. I think people have realized the long term value of a customer. And so, when you have a long term value of a customer kind of perspective was one thing I think Amazon was really good at. You also understand that organizations, engineers in particular, are not the most customer centric. They like coding. They don't like necessarily fixing customer problems or bugs even in their own code. So my role is definitely around advocacy within the organization. And there are times I've gotten into very heated discussions, what I would call full on yelling arguments with engineers on behalf of what I think the customer is wanting.
0: So tell us about some of the biggest lessons you've learned there at Data Robot, the startup where you, you're currently working that's changing so quickly, where you're not sure about the future of the organization or your place in it. When you look back eventually on your time there, what will be the biggest lessons you take away?
1: I think that culture is key. I knew culture was important, but we have a very demanding culture and we've seen people self-select out. And I think that's very healthy for an organization. I think one of the lessons I've learned is that from the outside looking in, people hear uh, VC-funded startups and they think, oh, it's you know, going to be the next LinkedIn or the next Facebook or the next. The reality of it is the equity you may earn for a lot of people isn't even life-altering. And secondarily, there's, it comes at high risk. So you literally could work these 70 hours. The equity you have is worth not even the paper that it's printed on. So I think it's a great thing to try at the right time in someone's life. It's something that I enjoyed uh, or still continue to enjoy, but I think that now I have kind of a wider eye, like a a better perspective and more appreciation for those slow moving large enterprises where I once was.
0: So when you think about a, a project like this, that's venture capitalist backed, does that just mean that it's all about the bucks and it's all about the return and you will go in there expecting to work really hard because it's only about the money?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, our... Hag, bold, hairy, aggressive goal, is to be a $2 billion company by the end of 2017. To be a $2 billion company, you need $50 million in revenue a quarter to be trading at whatever the right multiple is. And you just back into it from there, right? And you say, okay, our average deal size is this. We need to be at $50 million. That means we have this many deals. How many salespeople do we need to support that many deals? And you back into it. What I would say is, one thing I learned is that VCs are not as... because I thought they'd be more collaborative. What I'm learning is that they're very much, they will try and screw you because they're trying to get, it's an investment for them. You're one of hundreds of companies for them. So while they will help you make introductions and things like that, the reality of it is they're trying to lowball you on your valuation so they get more equity, right? And they can replace the leadership team if they don't like the direction of it, right? These are tough, nasty things. The co-founders could, and I'm not saying this is going to be the case, but they could end up being... Put out to pasture in a sense and not really even an, an employee of the company that they themselves have started. That happens more often than you, than you would think in a VC funded company because they are very much an aggressive finance play.
0: So does that mean with that kind of setup, there's a, a real cap and a low cap to how nice a place somewhere like that can be to work, to how human it can be in terms of the culture of the organization? Is that cap really low? I think my management
1: philosophy has really been throughout my career, especially after graduate school, has really been fundamentally on in, on treating people with integrity and respect. And that is largely thrown out the window. No. Screaming arguments are common. A little bit before me, fistfights were common. People are passionate. You get people that have PhDs and they think it should be X and people who think it should be Y and they're used to being the smartest person in the room and we just got a check for $20 million, right? And they're expecting that $120 million to be worth $200 million in four years from now. So the tempers run high, people are sleep deprived. That can be tough. That's not a, a great culture necessarily if you come at it from a management perspective of of integrity and respect for people.
0: So this experience has really challenged some of your philosophies on leadership?
1: <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I find it very, there are moments where I have to walk away from people. There are moments when I try and be the intermediary and be the peacemaker in a sense to try and reestablish a sense of trust amongst people, a sense of in, of respect amongst people that were having problems earlier.
0: I recently binge watched two seasons of Silicon Valley. Have you watched that show?
1: Yeah, we love it. We all talk about it. I have a Pied Piper shirt. Actually. Do you? Yes.
0: A lot of what you've just talked about there reminds me of some elements of that show. When you watch a show like that, is that a caricature of real life or is it scarily close to real life it's eerily close eerily
1: close i would say that the characters that you meet in that show are very similar to the people i interact with right the coders that are very egotistical but in fight a lot of times they don't like a management style or in the, in the case of silicon valley they introduced agile work development the investors all being kind of strange characters absolutely true the investors One of our investors who I really, really like, former MMA fighter, Stanford grad, which is a top U.S. school here, you know, highly stats oriented, but like aggressive kind of, you know, as you'd expect, an MMA fighter. Another investor, you know, a conversation doesn't go by without him mentioning that he used to fly for the, I think, the Air Force. So it's like, yeah, we get it. You know, like we've known you now for two years. Yes, and you're worth hundreds of millions of dollars. You know the other guy; he made a bunch of money just being kind of a prick to people. He reminds me of the Trace Comas, the guy who's like really into the tequila and is a billionaire from the Silicon Valley show. So we we always the two shows that people allow themselves to watch are Silicon Valley and Shark Tank. Those are the two shows that people watch, and we always end up quoting from it.
0: So is this a one-time deal for you? Can you imagine any time in your future being drawn back into a startup? This
1: may seem egotistical, but I would do it if I were running the show, like part of a co-founder team, because then I get to set the tone of the culture. That's how strongly I feel about management philosophy.
0: So you haven't always worked there, of course. Part of your career was spent at uh, a little company by the name of Amazon. And a while ago, (laughs) when Amazon was copping a bad time in the press about the way they treat employees, you felt compelled to write a piece that downplayed, or at least put some of those accusations in context.
1: Yeah, I actually love Amazon. I would go back and work there again. The reality of it is it is a hard place to work, absolutely. When I was there for 3 years, I had 6 bosses, not through a firing or people leaving, but through growth. We were adding a billion dollars in revenue every month, which is a staggering amount. I had all sorts of opportunities. I ran a workforce department for a 1000 person call center. I went to the Philippines for 8 weeks i launched social media customer service for them. And I loved that variety. I loved parts of Amazon because when you, for them, it all starts with the customer. And if you believe in that, that philosophy, if you contrast DataRobot with Amazon, DataRobot's goal is to be a $2.5 billion or $2 billion company at the end of 2017. Amazon, they don't talk about things like that. Their goal is to serve the customer. And so when you subscribe to something grander, It's easier to work hard. It's easier to be motivated for it. I think that's important. And so I really enjoyed it. My little, I don't post, in fact, that was the only time I've ever posted on LinkedIn, but they were getting such a bad rep. There are definitely problems there. When my girls were born, the day they were born, I was on paternity leave and my boss called me to ask a question, not to congratulate me, but to ask a question about work. That's not what you want to remember about that day. That's also technically illegal here in the States. When you're on a paternity leave, you're not supposed to do that. So I tried to be honest in that post, but I I was also honest that I knew all of those those things coming in and was still passionate about it and kind of drank the Kool-Aid to really fall in love with like, how do we best serve the customer? How can we be frugal to help the customer? In the end, Amazon is super successful. The only reason I left is because I wanted to be closer to my extended family. Otherwise, I would still be there.
0: So there must be something in that. Amazon's enormous success has been based not on revenue goals, but on goals around serving the customer. That's You don't have to be Einstein to work out that that's a pretty decent formula for success.
1: Yeah, absolutely. They have a narrative-based culture, which I really enjoy. Uh, enjoyed. So they to tell their kind of leadership tenants, they talk through stories. They don't say, this is our leadership tenant. And I think amateur leaders and amateur managers just say through dictation or something like mandate, hey, we need to be customer centric, right? Amazon tells everything through a story. So one thing, Jeff Bezos always wanted people to be owners and have an ownership attitude. And the story goes, I don't know how true it is, but the story goes that his parents had real estate. And one year in January, the tenants had moved out and Jeff and his family went over to the property that they owned and the people had nailed the Christmas tree down to the floor. And you do that when you're a renter. You don't do that if you're the owner. And so because of that, every single employee all the way down to the person on the call center floor or the, the warehouse floor actually are, has shares, a certain number of shares, so that they have that sense of ownership. You also don't see people being very frivolous with their money because ultimately that hits you as an owner. Um, and I think that those types of stories can be very powerful. So it's something I've tried to incorporate more and more into my own leadership style as I talk through stories of, you know, I've been managing people now for 10, 15 years and I have some rookie manager mistakes. I have some things that I felt very satisfied with. So for me, I think narratives are better than dictation always. Um, and that's one thing I picked up from there.
0: So would that customer-centric focus in, in a business model ever work in a VC venture?
1: Yeah, no, I don't take wanna... it on. They take on, so Jeff Bezos is very long-term focused, much to the frustration of Wall Street at different times that they live quarter by quarter. So I think it would have to be something very unique for a VC to say like, okay, I want them to be customer-centric. Because again, you have that usually around a four-year cycle before they're looking for an exit or a return. I think generally the startups that are non-VC, they're bootstrapped by a couple of co-founders, they have that luxury to be more customer-centric. I will say this, companies that are VC-backed, that are subscription-based models, they do look at your retention rate. So that's where you can get into the customer success or the customer centricity portion of it. But it's not always the case that they care necessarily.
0: So there were some vitriolic reports about the workplace culture at Amazon and you defended them and and I think others defended them too. But were any of them true? Are there elements of Amazon that can be a little bit too tough despite the positive things you've said already?
1: Yeah, no, I, I think absolutely every place has some issues. I didn't particularly like some of the, how do I put it? So I didn't always particularly like the 360 reviews to a manager. I didn't know that you would actually get an honest assessment, even though they're written anonymously. I don't think that is necessarily a truthful interaction. I also don't really like the top grading that they do where the top, or the lowest 10% get put onto performance-based and ultimately let go. That's something I think that it's a little aggressive. Personally, I don't think that people come to work thinking they or today I want to be the bottom 10% and I want to not do a good job. So I look at it as that the organization has failed rather than, okay, that's the bottom 10%. They say our bar is ever raising and so we're always going to leave certain people behind. I don't know that I always subscribe to that. So the, it is, it's tough, definitely. But I think on the whole, it's one of the greatest places to work.
0: Tell me about the feedback button. Is there really a feedback button on your phone? Absolutely. And what's that about? Tell us all about that.
1: So on the phone tool, it was, it's actually pretty, the phone directory actually has like everyone's badge picture and you can earn little badges for doing things. You answer a 10 question, thing about Amazon's history and you get a badge saying you're customer centric or peculiar, or you can, you're certified to, to do interviews or something like that. Interestingly though, underneath everyone's badge picture is a submit feedback button. And that's a web form that is anonymous, but it's hard to give concrete evidence without telling about a a specific instance without that person knowing who that is. Right. And so that's the issue that I have with it. Um, I think it's great because I can go two, three, four levels up if I have to, and I have a non-Amazonian experience with someone, I can leave that feedback. And that feedback actually doesn't go to the person that within the phone director, it actually goes to that person's boss. So I could see how overly political people could start to try and use that against you. And I think that can be difficult. I also didn't like Jeff's response where he's like, that's not the Amazon I know. And anyone should, you know, talk to me. That just sounds like corporate BS, really. I mean, obviously, it's not the Amazon he knows. He's surrounded by an inner circle of people and he's not exposed to it, you know? So, yeah, no, that definitely ha- exists.
0: Tell us about some of the most valuable lessons you learned during your time at Amazon.
1: Yeah. So, I learned a couple of, I think, really good things. My first job there was as a customer service manager. I managed 20 Kindle associates. And so, if you had a problem with your Kindle, people would call up. And so, I sensed some frustration. You know, being a call center rep is a difficult job. People call you and yell at you. Basically, it's your fault the thing doesn't work or is broken or I dropped it and it cracked or whatever. And so, one of the things I found to be very important was um, allowing some people, even in this job that seemed to be very robotic, you take 150 calls a day, to have a form of personal expression. So my team was called the Rebel Alliance, and Everyone was allowed to choose any rebel that they wanted, any character that they wanted, in order to put it on a, a team board. And people put a lot of emphasis. I wanted to be, you know, I don't know, some Star Wars character. I wanted to be whatever they're into. But in doing so, it allows people to like talk and get to know each other, which I thought was interesting. And then I also made the commitment that I would never miss a one-on-one. And it's interesting because that is more of like a working class job. And so my feelings on this are, are different For as I've moved up into higher ranks, about one-on-ones. But for those people, I wanted to ensure that they felt that they were heard and that they got their time with me and what was called a lead, it's kind of like an assistant manager, once a week. And there was a time that I was managing 44 of these reps, and so if you spend 15 minutes to half an hour with each one, there goes your whole week, right? So it's, it's a commitment, and it's very easy to just cancel that and say, hey look, I'm busy, I'll get to you next time. And they're not going to say anything because you're their manager or sometimes their manager's manager. But in the end, that undermines your leadership and it undermines their thoughts on you as a leader and whether or not you have respect and integrity for them. And then the last thing, Amazon is a very, like I said, narrative-based culture. So it's also very email heavy. I think I tracked it one time I was getting over an email a minute, including the time I wasn't at work. But what I, I decided consciously to do all, was to be present with the people that were standing there talking to me and look up from my screen because I observed other managers that would stare at their screen, answer the question of the person that, that's speaking to them without ever actually looking up. I always felt you could get more accomplished face to face. I also thought from a respect standpoint, it's important to look up from your screen. The email is not as important as the associate that I'm managing that's right in front of me.
0: So, how difficult have those lessons or philosophies been to stay true to in your current role?
1: So, I would say that it is a challenge, but that's, and there are times I've drifted away from that. But one of the things that I do, everywhere I go, I have a notebook I keep notes in for like meetings or things I want to jot down. But on the inside cover, I write a few of these kind of notes that I think are important. And what's interesting is when you get to the end of a notebook, you start a new notebook and then you rewrite them under your front cover. It's like a recommitment to being present with your associates and respect and integrity. And so I'm not going to say I do it perfectly all the time. And then I look up and turn away from my monitor every time. But I think that you know, every month or however long when I get a new notebook, as they fill up, I recommit to that and try my best.
0: Being present with your associates, that's such a simple yet wonderful mantra to try and live by. I'm- that resonates with me really strongly. I've got a story I might tell later on. if yeah, yeah. some time. It's, um, it's one of my leadership regrets because I'm going to ask you about some of yours later. So I might tell one of mine. But uh, I just want to mention now a third place that you've worked because we've talked about a startup and we've talked about your time at, at one of the iconic dot com success stories. So let's hit somewhere in the middle and talk about Liberty Mutual. I'm assuming this ticked your box for a, a really safe place to work. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. So this is a Fortune 100. So it's about a $35 billion company, which I'm assuming in Australian dollars is like more than your entire country. It's a so. trillion dollars. <laughs> I know. I remember your monopoly money. It's great. So let's see. So no offense it's a, taken. Yeah, no. Well, you know, that's just how it is. I'm a Yankee. I'm American. So then we just defend people and don't care.
0: I'm just happy you're not going to bomb me. I'm going to do it. You never know. Part. You
1: never know. We all have guns and we all have the ability to shoot and bomb people.
0: Well, if you look, if you decided to bomb us, we would join the coalition because that's what we do.
1: <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> you'd have to. <laughs> uh, no, so Liberty is a Fortune 100 company, it's 100 years old. Interestingly, its a credo, one of the things it does for both employees and for its shareholders, policyholders. It believes in risk mitigation and avoiding risk and treating people with some respect, I think is right in the credo. So from a management philosophy, walking in, I was super excited. And to this day, I still really enjoy that place. I still am friends with a lot of those people. Liberty is very slow moving though. It's a hundred year old company, right? So it has done well by moving slow, by not getting caught up in the fads of management's style or any of it. So I think for them, they were excited to have someone from Amazon. I was in charge of analytics for their call centers, so 2,000 call center agents nationwide, and I was in charge of the analytics for it. And it took me like 10 months to introduce what I previously had thought was an industry standard metric. That's the, the pace in which they seem to go.
0: So is it fair, you know, I, I've looked through your CV and picked out those three organizations as being kind of a, a way to round out your career. You know, you get the fast moving startup, the, the really successful dot com, and then that hundred year old monolith that, as you said, <laughs> has survived by ignoring trends. Is On reflection so far in your career, do you see them in those three very distinct categories?
1: Absolutely. They all have different cultures, distinct cultures. I'm a firm believer in the power of culture and getting the right people to be in the right culture. But I think People can be in successes in other cultures, work and organizational cultures, but ultimately they're kind of faking it. And so, for the intense people that still want some big company kind of background, or you know, not the upside that I'm going to be a billionaire, but you know, I can still do really well and I'm fast moving and things like that. A place like Amazon's perfect for someone who really is risk tolerant and wants to hit a home run and swing for the fences. I don't know what the sticky wicked or whatever the hell you guys call it. Good uh, try. (laughs) <laughs> uh, whatever the equivalent Australian thing is, I think you know a startup is great. And what I've learned about the startup thing is that it's a community. Because even if it fails, because everyone's on this four-year cycle, there's other startups to go and get into. You're never really going to be out of a job. It's just a rinse and repeat thing with these guys, which is cool. It's it's a roller coaster, right? And if you are that type of person, that's a great thing to get into. If you are excited about the sexiest, bleeding-edge piece of JavaScript or Python library or whatever it is, that's a great place to go. So if you're the type of person that likes to collaborate, if you're the type of person that likes to think through a problem to a long time to come to a good conclusion, I think that a place like Liberty Mutual or a slower moving, large monolithic kind of company is the great place to work. All of three organizations are distinct. I've been lucky to get into all three. For me, it's important that people select into a culture that is, aligns with who they are.
0: So you went to Liberty Mutual after you worked at Amazon. Did Liberty challenge any of the things that you thought you knew, any of the, the rules you had in place for yourself about being a leader?
1: Yes. So when I was formerly very committed to doing one-on-ones and would never miss them, at Liberty, there's so many meetings that actually I adopted a different philosophy on that. I actually said, "I will do a one-on-one with you, the person who they work for me organizationally, but I always choose to, to say that they work alongside me. I think that choosing words is important. So I, if I'm meeting someone's family, I say, "Oh, I work with someone. I never say that person works for me. I think that's rude. But one of the things that challenged me was this like one-on-ones when I already had just seen them in another meeting, and I already knew exactly what was going on, Or the person would show up unprepared to the one-on-one, right? So What I realized there is in some professional contexts, it's not as important. The person feels comfortable to raise their hand and go ask for a one-on-one. You don't have to have it set explicitly. So that was an adjustment for me. One of the other things is at Amazon, you're rewarded for moving pretty fast. Their mantra is launch early and iterate often. And that's really served them. And so I would go to these meetings where literally we would talk about how we're going to talk about the subject in the very next meeting. And that would drive me bonkers. At Liberty, you mean? Yeah, yeah. At Liberty, we would sit there and say, well, in the next meeting, Vice President so and so is going to be there. And they are advocating from this perspective how are you going to address this very controversial change we want to make in the organization? Mm -hmm. That used to drive me crazy. So I was fortunate enough to be on a very big project working alongside some consultants for a, a large consultancy called McKinsey. And what I learned from them is the power of summarizing and the power of trying to gain collaboration through just using the same the person's words back to them. If they're like staunchly saying X, Y, and Z, you try and restate it in a way that is either more watered down. And you say, oh, if I'm hearing you correctly, what you really are trying to articulate is this. You still give them the chance to disagree. They still feel heard. But I think there's real power in, in allowing them to feel heard but then you're still couching it because you're the one who's summarizing it in a way in which you can articulate maybe your point. And so I I learned through observation there, but man, it was challenging. I I really was challenged to give up on my, everyone needs a one-on-one no matter what, and to be more patient in gaining collaboration as opposed to just moving fast and making a, a deliberate choice.
0: So they're the things that were challenged in terms of your move from Amazon to Liberty. What about brand new ideas, things that you learned at Liberty that were were new to you, and they're now part of the Ted Quartler leadership package?
1: Yeah, you know, actually, I learned a couple different things, one of which is the value of giving people freedom. So there are types of leaders who don't trust the people they put in place, and they want to even read, and literally I saw this, they want to read everyone's email before it goes to the vice president or so-and-so. The value of trusting the person that is going to do the actual work is very important. I think giving people the freedom to execute is super important. You know, worst case scenario, thank goodness I don't work in a hospital, I guess, but, you know, worst case scenario, you know, maybe an email gets sent, the vice president gets a little upset, or the president of the company gets a little upset, but I would have written the email just the same, right? Understanding that someone else's voice is different but not necessarily wrong is definitely something you have to internalize as a good leader, in my opinion, because otherwise you're just going to micromanage people. They're going to not like working alongside you and they're not, definitely not going to, you're going to end up like burning yourself out. So that was one thing that I learned.
0: And you learned so that, that at Liberty Mutual. That, that seems to me maybe not the place that you would have learned that a really traditional old fashioned organization. That is probably true. That. Yeah, I think. And I
1: could be wrong, but I think the people that worked alongside me, I started with ten, and I told my boss we could do the workload with less, and so I got it down to six, and I had less checks in the system, so to speak, right? I had an assistant manager whom the person still works there. he's working in a different capacity. But my feeling was we should just trust the experts to to do their job, and in doing so, we were able to slim down the organization so People seem to have really enjoyed that. And that's, and I know that's how I like to be managed. I like people who advocate for me and isolate me when I need to be isolated. And that's what I tried to do for this group was allow them the freedom to execute. They wanted to send a presentation and I caught a little hell for it later. That's okay, right? If they were to come with to me and say, I want to do this presentation, I would ask them why and it would make sense. And we would have sent it anyway. So why slow the process down further? That place did not need to be slowed down any more than it already was. The other thing is, two other things I learned there was around the tools to be a success. So we are an analytics group and the tools of the trade at the time were Microsoft Excel and Microsoft PowerPoint, which are all well and good, but we can do more analytically with a language I'm familiar with called R. And so I wanted to install Studio and then train some of the people that I worked with on how to use R. In a sense, I thought that would allow us to have to be faster because it's repeatable work. It's auditable. There's a lot of benefits to it. So I wanted to make sure that they had the tools to be a success, the freedom to execute. And then something that I didn't learn at Liberty, I actually learned at Amazon, but I brought to Liberty was the value of celebration. So I don't know who said it, but it stuck with me that there's no limit to what a group can do if no one cares who takes credit for it. And I think that that's absolutely true. When everyone's like infighting and wants to be seen that they did this and they did that, you're limited. It's wasted energy. I'd rather be more productive. And so the way to get around that and to get people to buy into a collective, I think, is to celebrate. And so at Amazon, when we launched social media customer service on our forums, that was like a two month project. When that was done, we went and got a pinata and we beat the hell out of it because that was a lot of fun for us to like get the stress out. And then we decided to make that a, and then so everyone that was involved in that launch also got a little Lego character they could put on their desk. And then as the team grew and we said, okay, we're doing forums. Now we want to add Facebook as a channel. We got a new Legos and we got a new pinata and people were proud of their Legos. And we went out there and it was cathartic to go beat that pinata. Then when we launched Twitter support, we did the same thing. Everyone got to pick a Lego character. Everyone got to beat up a pinata. So celebrating is super important. And when you do that and you celebrate as a group, it's not like it's always perfect, but you end up kind of getting this collective attitude like we were all in there in it together. And so we did the same thing at Liberty. We had this annual plan and it was a bear. It was, you know, here's a $75 million plan. Your calls are going up by 2%, but your plan dollars are going down by 3%. So the gap is pretty wide. You have to figure out ways to cover that gap. That was a bear. That was tough. And it was... It was hard work, and it was challenging, and it was hard. But in the end, after we were all done, we all went out. Throughout, we did a couple checkpoints because there's a couple rounds of plan. But At the very end, we did, I think, one of the celebrations. We, they rented a, a big boat. We all went kind of on a booze cruise. And I think the ability to celebrate, cheer each other on, the ability to blow off steam, all of that's really important.
0: They're great lessons that getting people to buy into the team objectives, that collective objective by celebrating success. And I I love the one that you started with, the lesson learned from Liberty was the idea of trusting the people who you work with and not having to check every email and check every presentation. I can't remember who it was. I think it was Steve Jobs. You don't employ smart people to tell them what to do.
1: Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And it's got to be so frustrating. I like to think of like, who do I like to be managed by? Well, I definitely don't like to be managed by a micromanager. And the people that are like, I'm not a micromanager, very often are micromanagers. And it drives me nuts. It drives me nuts to be managed by those people. It drives me nuts to be peers of those people. And I think that that may come from a sense of like insecurity ultimately, because you have to feel secure in your leadership style that so and so who is going to write something that I'm not even going to check and it's going to hit, you know, three, four levels above me. I have to feel secure that that person acted intelligently and feel secure in who I am as a leader in order to mitigate any possible backlash. Very often, like I said, they're gonna come to you, present the facts, you'll say the exact same thing. And then the the other thing that drives me nuts is if someone were to submit something to me and ask me to proofread it, outside of grammar, I don't particularly care. The message is yours. Me rewriting the sentence because I have a different grammatical choice or semantic choice makes no sense. I'd rather just move forward. And I think that a lot of managers that were promoted, especially the ones that were promoted, it's definitely a a rookie manager mistake because they were good at the job that they're now managing. And I think that can be rough.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. Those managers who were good at their job, they were promoted and they feel as though they still need to do that job. I had Prue McKenzie on the podcast a few episodes ago, and she talked about that exact problem of a a leader getting to the point in their career where they have to learn to let go of the doing, the work that's being done. And that that's a point in their leadership maturity that sometimes is really difficult to come to, but you know when oh, yeah. you, you know when you've gotten there. Ted, you've given us some really fantastic, tangible reflections and lessons that you've learned, and I I love the fact that you've worked at those three really distinct organisations. You've worked elsewhere, but that's why I picked out those three. But I would really be interested in now you telling us about some of the leadership mistakes that you've made, the things that make you want to put your head in your hands and die in embarrassment when you think back on.
1: Yeah, I have plenty. I like to call them rookie manager mistakes. Rookie manager mistakes that I've done. I worked at a small company, 13-person company, and I was ultimately fired from it. And it's interesting because at the time, I had a crisis of confidence. I was fired, I think, to be honest with you, I was very young. I was not the hardest worker. I was 22. I was going out drinking, probably showing up smelling like booze chasing the ladies, that sort of thing. And I probably deserved it, to be honest with you.
0: I, thought, God, I think we... I might have known you then.
1: <laughs> that's true. That's true. But when you get fired from a job, and I thought I was going to be this grand business person. And so one of the leadership things I take out of that is the ability to pick yourself up off the mat. I think that's important. The other times, I worked at a company called American Greetings, just a miserable job, actually, when I knew you, Dave, in D.C., miserable job, didn't really like it. But I was a first time manager of people who were much older than me. And I was intimidated by that. So who is this young punk going to tell this other person what to do? I anticipated that. Uh, that was a mistake. Because in the end, people have to respect your leadership. And they respect not being so kind of like without a backbone, I should say. And I'm never draconian in my approach, but I think I was like too scared to really even tell people direct feedback. Another rookie manager mistake that I gave when I was at, or that I did when I was at American Greetings was to believe that if I were friends with people, the people whom were reporting to me, that they would do what I needed to get done. What happens is a lot of times those people will actually do the opposite and start minimizing their work output. And then when they do that, the people whom... So if you're nice to them, it's like a self, sometimes people will lower their work output. Then you try and be nice to them again or continue that behavior in hopes of it improving. That doesn't actually help. I mean, it kind of is like self-fulfilling at that point. Worse than that, though, your top performers see that. And I think one thing I underestimated was that if you don't hold the lowest you know, decile accountable... Then your top performers, your top decile, gets frustrated because they're busting their hump. They feel like they're doing a good job, and they feel uh, they will ultimately start to resent that. And I think when you have a successful team, you are holding people accountable and celebrating people on the high end. If you're celebrating the top decile and holding the lowest decile and giving the lowest people the tools to be a success, they will actually want to strive to be the top decile versus everyone being friendly, and them kind of shirking on their duties. I think it's something that I did way too often early in my leadership career. I think that's probably one of the reasons that I hated that job was that I didn't feel like I was a success at it because I couldn't get what I needed to out of the team that I had in place. And that is frustrating as a leader.
0: I'm guessing that what you're telling us is not that being nasty to people is the way to be a leader. There's a difference between being someone's friend and developing a good authentic, productive leadership relationship.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I kind of think the good leaders go out for a beer with the team, but leave after two. That way the team has time to decompress without the boss being around. The times the boss is out getting hammered alongside them or doing the fun thing right next to the, to the troops, it's not always productive. I definitely treat everyone with respect. I think that's really important, but I do hold people accountable. I think I try and take a genuine interest what did you do last weekend? And then I try and listen. And then I try and remember, I'm not always the best at it, but I try and remember and say, oh, how was X, Y, Z that you did, right? How was the ball game you went to, whatever. It shows a, a real interest, a sincere and authentic interest without being like so chummy that the person's gonna try and take advantage of you. That's just my perspective on things because I, I learned when I was at American Greetings how difficult it can be to go back, right? Like if I'm genuinely real friendly with someone to then go back to that person and say, hey, I have to deliver some piece of candid feedback or worse, have to lay someone off because they have been tardy too many times or something like that. You know, that's a very difficult conversation. But if they know it ahead of time and they have that consistent kind of feedback, then it's not a surprise for anyone. Unfortunately, I've had to lay off countless people at different points in my career. And sometimes people have even shaken my hand and they said, I've enjoyed working with you. And so, you know, I think that that, those are the times where it's like, wow, I did that part right. You know, it feels, while it's not a great outcome for anyone, it wasn't a shock to anyone. We're all still leaving with some amount of respect. And I think that that's pretty important.
0: Tell us about some of your leadership triumphs, the moments in your career where those lessons that you've learned have come to a head in one fantastic moment.
1: Yeah. So I managed a woman named Heather at Amazon. And Heather was a college graduate working in a call center whom struck me as very intelligent and completely underutilized. And when I was in charge of putting together the social media customer service team, I was able to assemble the team myself. And they said, here's this call center. It's a 1,000 people. You get to pick the 10 that you want to be on the team. And obviously, you want very good people to be on a team like that because the customer service replies are very public. They can become part of PR problems or legal problems if you set incorrect expectations or the wrong promises. So someone had to be very good. And they also had to be grammatically correct. And then also I want people that I are fun to to work with. And so I ultimately had Heather on the team. She was great. She was the type of person that if I needed, I said, look, you know, you guys have to come up with schedules. I can do it for you. You know, we have to schedule seven days a week. And, you know, from these hours, I think maybe 8 to 8 or something like that. She ended up putting together all of it. The team got buy-in, and she started to emerge as a leader. And so I felt very satisfied that I found this person who had upside potential and was able to become a leader by influencing, not by title, but by influencing within her peer group. And then what really was kind of the cherry on top was she ultimately, I got to sit down with this person with Heather and present her with paperwork that said, here's a raise that you're getting, here's you know, more stock options, things like that. That's very satisfying, right? Because you know that you're impacting that person's life. The person had it in them to begin with. You helped bring that out. And ultimately, right now, she got another promotion. She's up in Seattle. So it's like this person was just going largely ignored. And so when you have the chance to feel like you've had a hand, the person did all the work. You just set them up for success. I think that that feels very satisfying.
0: Because you could argue that ultimately, the responsibility of leaders is to breed the next generation of leaders.
1: Yeah, I'd like to think that in a professional sense, I want to hire the people that are going to replace me. I'm not always going to be there. I don't really even want to be in that same job in perpetuity. But I would like to think that the next generation of leaders I am one of those people that thinks that leadership can largely be taught and you can be introverted or extroverted. I think it's a worthwhile study, and that good leaders understand the responsibility and understand it's like a skill that you constantly have to add to your craft and pick little nuggets here and there and so I think in the case of of Heather or I think it's extremely i feel very proud that I set this person up. I'm not taking credit for it, but set this person up to be in a position where when she worked hard and showed how smart she was, she was able to thrive.
0: I mentioned earlier that I was going to come clean with you about why I've been pursuing this conversation so much. We've been talking about having this interview for weeks and weeks. That's and true. And th- this is what it comes down to. And I, I'll, be, I'll be interested to hear whether you're surprised to hear this. When I think back to those days, all those years ago, when we mainly hung out playing NFL on the PlayStation, the <laughs> memories true. I have of you, Ted Quartler are of a person bursting with emotional intelligence. And I didn't know the language at the time. I didn't know what it was. I'd never read about it. But even if we don't know the labels, we all know emotional intelligence when we see it. Is it surprising to hear me say something like that? Does it ring true with you?
1: I don't know that I would use those terms, I suppose, right? I think think it is surprising in some ways, but I think I've always thought of myself as liking to be around people And I'm one of those people who's energized by being with people. There are people who are the opposite, right? They get drained by being with people. It feels like an endeavor. I'm one of those people that if I'm tired and I need to pep up, I want to go visit with someone. I want to have a stimulating conversation. So yeah, I think that is not altogether surprising. I think had I been younger when you said that, like at the time, I would have been surprised by it. Uh, I never thought of myself even really as a leader. And I never really, I just liked being around people but I think now, you know, next month I'll be 37 and now I'm regained my confidence as a leader and as a manager and all that. I do, you know, kind of, I do see that, but for you to have recognized it back then, I, I actually kind of shocked. I think of myself as like just an immature kind of idiot back then.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not true at all. And, and for those listeners who want to know a little more about emotional intelligence, it's a, it's obviously a broadly discussed topic and there are, Depending on which particular model you read, there are five elements of emotional intelligence. Self-awareness, the ability to know the kind of impact you're having on the people around you. Self-regulation, there's no point in knowing the impact you're having on those around you if you can't regulate the way you behave and the way your emotions impact your behavior. Social skills probably speaks for itself. Empathy, the ability to tap into where someone else is coming from and, and be able to imagine walking in their shoes. And then, of course, motivation. The um, We're all motivated by some things, but an emotionally intelligent person is motivated by wholesome, virtuous type things. And uh, and I, I mean that, Ted. We, Thanks, you know, we, we spent a lot of time together back in those days. And, and as I said, I didn't know that language at the time. But it, it surprises me not to hear about the kind of professional success you've had because of the fact that when I think emotional intelligence, there's a number of people in my life that flood into my mind, and you're one of those people. You're you are highly emotionally intelligent, and it's, and it's a difficult Thanks. topic to bring up with someone who is because, of course, they're usually extremely humble about that as well. So
1: Yeah, it makes me feel uncomfortable to hear you say that, man.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll move on. Now, I've got a couple more. I always end my interviews with a few questions, the same questions, but we're not there yet. I want to know one more thing before we get there. You are writing a book. You already have a book deal. I want to know a few things. I want to know what you're writing a book about. And I want Mm -hmm. to know how on earth do you get a book deal before you've even written a book?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. All right. So the book itself is called Text Mining in R. It's going to be a technical manual. So the book is by Manning Publications. It's likely going to come out in the summer. It's going to be a real snoozer for someone who's not technically minded. But what I would say is, my journey to writing a book has been interesting. There's a statistical piece of software called R, language called R. I'm self-taught in it because I only have an MBA, not a computer science degree. So I've been very passionate about it, particularly around sports analytics. But as I got better at it and analyzing basketball and things like that, I also came across text mining. And my wife told me, and I think it rings true, that Text mining is perfect for me because it's the math of talking. And those are my two favorite things, math and talking. And so I've been passionate about it, just learning about it and doing it in social media. Like, you know, you download a couple thousand tweets and without reading them, try and figure out what they're talking about. Interestingly, I have, I just downloaded some articles mentioning Pakistan in The Guardian and did some sentiment analysis and some word counts and things like that. And it turns out The Guardian is spending more time talking about cricket when it comes to Pakistan as opposed to like uh, war or Taliban or anything like that. So they're devoting resources more on the sports side. I'm not uh, surprised to least... see that. <laughs> I was. I was. So I, I've really enjoyed it and kind of became like a hobby of mine in addition to this sports analytics. Well, I was fortunate enough to be asked to speak at a conference. In fact, actually asked to speak at three or four conferences in a row over the last, I guess now, 18 months. And I've always done it, even though it's on my dime. I fly out to Chicago, I fly out to San Francisco. I flew out to San Diego, I did one here in Boston. And I have been giving away my passion for free, doing workshops and talking through how to do text mining and things like that. And I listened to a motivational speaker once in a while, I'm not big on motivational speaking per se, but he had mentioned that when you are passionate about something and you give it away for free, eventually that will pay dividends. And I actually fully subscribe to that because now, two and a half years into me reading every blog I could find on the subject and practicing on my commute in and into Boston and out of Boston, at the last two conferences ago now, there was an acquisitions editor sitting in the audience who approached me and said, have you thought about writing a book on this subject? And I filled out a book proposal and they offered me a contract within days. And coincidentally, I am proud of the fact that three book publishers actually reached out to me. I was fortunate enough, it seems like text mining is a hot topic, that once they found out that I was willing to write a book, that these other two came and offered me uh, similar contracts to the one that I had already gotten. So I was very pleased. It must mean I'm onto something. Ultimately, it's a lot of work, and there are moments when I want to strangle my editor, but I'm trying to be enjoy the process and the journey. But yeah, that's my road to now getting a book done. That's
0: Uh, a fantastic story, mate. Well, when your book comes out, I will put a link to it on my website so my loyal listeners can get hold of your book. There sounds like there's going to be a couple of uses for it. People who are really into that topic, and as you said at the top, maybe people with a bit of insomnia.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's very interesting for a small subset of people.
0: (laughs) Mate, that sounds like, in all seriousness, that's a future startup for you.
1: Yeah, and that's actually one thing I've thought about. As I've met these VC characters, because they're all characters, I have kicked around the idea about putting together a text mining startup because organizations are sitting on a lot of text within and there's also a lot of text outside the organization. And how do you distill that into necessary product features? I can go download and scrape an entire Dell customer service forum and tell you the number top three problems that their computers are experiencing. I don't know that Dell is doing that, but I can do that on my laptop. And those are the things that as an organization, I hope that they're addressing.
0: That's a fantastic Um, future, mate. That's very interesting.
1: Yeah. Maybe nothing will come of it, but I find it very interesting to try and do. Right. I don't know. That's just me.
0: So Ted, as I said earlier, I always end my interviews with the same four questions. I'm really. Interested to hear your answers on these ones. Are you ready? A lot of pressure,
1: but I'll try. All right.
0: See how you go. Tell me about the Saturday night you most look forward to, a big party with lots of people you know, or a dinner with your closest, most intimate friends.
1: For me, it's a big party. As long as my friends are there, right? My intimate friends is there as well. I'm the type of person that just is attracted to crowds, I think.
0: And you gave away your answer to that earlier when you said that you're energized by spending time with people. So you're a theoretical extrovert that gives you energy to, to spend time with lots of people. And, and you rightly identified that for, the, for others, for introverts, they can do it. They have the social skills to do it, but it costs them energy to do that. So your yeah, answer to absolutely. that was correct. <laughs> All right, good. One (laughs) for one. (laughs) All right. Now tell me, are you more likely to get bogged down in the detail or caught daydreaming?
1: Caught daydreaming, for sure. For sure. I am not the most organized nor detail-oriented person. I think that's why I've gravitated to innovative roles. That's just who I am.
0: What about the way you make decisions? Are you a slave to rational thought process or do you make decisions based on emotion?
1: So I work alongside top data scientists in the world, but largely I'm called to come to customers, not them. And when I say top, I mean literally the top 50 on Kaggle.com. They are insanely more brilliant than me. But I think what they miss is the value of the qualitative. And I think you can have, I try to use data-driven decision to inform my decisions, but ultimately nothing beats the human brain at synthesizing information. And so I think there's a value in qualitative understanding.
0: Well, that's such a great answer. And I said to a guest 2 or 3 weeks ago that that the exact answer that you just gave is probably the most common answer to that question. A lot of my guests tell me that they take in lots of information, but when it comes down to it, they make their decision based on intuition. They let all of that data kind of percolate a- away in their mind and then the- the right answer just spews out. And it's a a mixture of emotion, experience, and fact.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. In the U.S., there's a March Madness. is a collegiate basketball tournament. You can study every stat of every single team, but the qualitative seeding rank that's put on the team by a committee is by far and away the most statistically important variable for winning a game. So even if you look at a qualitative variable through statistical eyes, often it's very important. It's just the human brain synthesizes information better than computers. It just does.
0: So my very last question to you, Ted Quartler: you're going on a road trip. Do you plan the route, book your hotels and know exactly where you're going? Or do you just get in the car and drive?
1: I will, my last major road trip that I look back fondly on, when I worked at American Greetings, they gave me that car, a brand new Pontiac. And when I decided to quit, my friends and I decided to drive to Mexico. We didn't plan anything between Ohio and Mexico, which is like a 15-hour, maybe 25-hour drive. It's just an insane drive. And we would just camp. And I look back so fondly on that road trip because now I don't have that luxury. Now everything has to be planned. And so I think I wistfully and nostalgically look back on that road trip because my
0: life is nothing like that now. (laughs) it's amazing how things change with those little bundles of joy, Hey, (laughs) absolutely, man. Absolutely. Ted Cordler. I really appreciate your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. You're full of gold nuggets when it comes to leadership and lessons learned. I really appreciate your thoughts, mate. It's been great to finally get together and have this chat.
1: I agree. It's been too long, man. Thanks, Ted. Thank you.
0: And there you have Ted Cortler. The thing I'll always enjoy about talking to Ted is his contagious enthusiasm for everything he does and his positive outlook on life. As far as leadership lessons go, well, there were some gems in there, and I'm not surprised. Leadership, as much as anything else, is about awareness, awareness of yourself and the people around you. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from this episode on the Lessons Learned page from the podcast. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. And keep an eye out on the Team Guru website for the next episode on this, my mission to bring the theory of team and leadership development to life. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.